I think that God does something very intentional in Scripture in not prescribing a specific style of church or a specific format for church. If you search through the New Testament, you don't find, here's what your church gatherings are supposed to look like, and here's the way that you're supposed to structure your, there's not like a manual on what the church is supposed to exactly look like. There's not like a liturgy of when you get together, then first somebody should read a verse, and secondly, somebody should do this, and here's when you should meet and the times. It's not in there. So, and I think if God wanted to give us specific direction on, like if he wanted us to be doing something specifically in our church gatherings, he would have clearly prescribed that in scripture. Um, so just, uh, I wonder what you all think about this, like why, why do you think that might be? I don't think there's a correct answer here, but why do we just kind of gain bits and pieces of here's what the church is like, but not like an ABC manual? If you're starting a church, here's what you do, or if you're going to church gatherings, make sure that they do this, this, and this. Like, why might it not be that specific? What do you think? I think everyone's fed differently. Like, for some people, they receive more through one vessel, and another person might receive differently. Mm. So there need to be different styles to meet different people's way of learning and their needs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, just the aspect of we're human and so um, that being uh, diversity being a big aspect of that. So on the same lines of how we receive, how we worship, how what our gifts are mm -hmm. to give us a step-by-step -step really puts us in a box that God never really intended us to be. And I also don't think it it allows us to rely on the Holy Spirit to really be led to plant a church here or serve a certain community or whatever the case is. If we have this standard list of stuff. Yeah. It seems it's why Jesus came because they had a specific way to worship. The Israelites had a specific way, and it was very detailed. And so, I think Jesus—that was part of him coming for the law, so that we didn't have to be so rigid in our worship, but that there was freedom. And I think to that, just that being in tune with the Holy Spirit. And yeah, and he didn't want the rigidity that the Pharisees were putting on the religion, right? Um, because it seems like Jesus wanted more than here's what everything that you have to do in life. Um, and it ha has to do with the heart, right? Like G we say over and over, kind of get the sense in Scripture, the New Testament, Jesus' teachings, that Jesus wants our heart after him and not just if you check these things off, your religion is good. Yeah, any other thoughts on like why there might not be specific prescriptions, church style, format. Well, it's also like, excuse me, <laughs> geographically, like where you live, like if you like live in like certain parts of Asia, like you can't like go to church service and like worship mm -hmm. freely, where like in some places you can, and so like there's different things for different periods of time. Yeah, yeah, the context changed drastically, even for for us and first century, um, first century church, the context very different, what's allowable, and even house sizes, and yeah, freedom of worship, all these things change. So. I think what you just said about like what's allowable and that sort of thing, that's another thing too, it's like you're talking about with the rules, right, God just cares that we're walking in truth. And he's given us truth and what we're supposed to do in terms of living. So as long as we're living in that way yeah. and being led by the Spirit, then our worship is true worship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it might come out in, in different ways for different people. Yeah. Well, I love that every local church kind of has to work through what they're format is going to look like. I think it's a really healthy exercise, and I think 
that I think that like a legitimate local church, every local church has the same as part of the bigger church has the same mission and overall goals. Hopefully, um, but we get to like work out as as individual local churches. We get to work out how we get to accomplish that mission. And if God told us specifically it's step one, throw a neighborhood potluck, and step two, do this and that, then it would totally take the heart out of it in our pursuit of, well, we want to accomplish this mission. And, um, so I love that we get to kind of um, always be seeking, hey, what, what makes sense here in this community in this time? Um, but as, as a lot of you know, and I, I bring up fairly often, maybe too often, um, as a church, we kind of... Uh, have summarized and we spent some time just as we we're very in the very beginnings of this church looking through the New Testament asking okay even though there's not a lot of specifics like what does what's the church kind of about or what's it what does the church seem to be doing and accomplishing and who is the church um, and kind of compiled all of everything that the New Testament calls the individuals and the church together everything that it calls us to and I think a really good summary of that of, that we've talked about over the years is these, these characteristics of the church of truth, like Megan said, and love. And I think you can, um, it, it would be impossible to deny that one of the central components of the church is this message of truth that we have to declare. And you're not a church just because you do a bunch of nice things, but there's actually a message that accompanies that. And in the same way, you can't deny that a central component of the church is the love that, that we express uh, to each other, certainly to the world. And so, and you can't just be a bunch of people that are talking a lot about Jesus but don't express that love, or else it's, I'd say it's not a legitimate church. So um, I, those two components working together, truth and love, the more I look in Scripture and including our passage today, the more I see, man, those are good just summarizing characteristics or core values, if you will, of, of the church. And a lot of things, most of what the church accomplishes in the New Testament or is commanded to do can kind of be summarized in those couple of things. Um, so just our, our mission statement, if you don't know, it's just that Novo Church is a fellowship of Christians who display and declare the love and truth of Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a display, it's an action, and it's verbal, something that we say, and it's love and truth. Those two things kind of come together. Um, hopefully, y'all, again, that's, that's not unique to us. I hope that other Christian churches around in North Hollywood and Burbank and LA and everywhere around the world are also um, committed to those things in some capacity. Um, but another thing is we thought, this is just um, a kind of summary of how we have got where we are. Thought it would be, it would make sense that our primary regular, and this is gonna get to the text in just a minute, but that our primary regular ministries or activities focus on these two things, truth and love. And um, we've, that kind of puts feet to those vague out there terms of truth and love. We can say all we want when we're a people of truth and love, but like you have to start putting some feet on that or just it doesn't really mean anything. And so of all of the things that we could commit to doing regularly, um, we've seen um, and I've seen such a priority in scripture of those two components that we've actually structured our regular activities in a way to highlight these two things. So we share in a midweek teaching, which is what we're doing here tonight, which is an intentional time that we have to grow in our knowledge of the truth and um, among other ways that we do that in our lives. And then we have weekly fellowship meals that y'all are a part of, that's our intentional time to love one another specifically. Not that there's not truth in that in the fellowship meal, not that there's not love here to some extent in our, in our midweek teaching, but um, we said, hey, let's make these two things that stand out so much in scripture about the New Testament church, let's put feet on those and have those as our consistent kind of main ministries, if you will. So um, this passage that we look at today, Acts 2.42, and the following verses we'll look at in the next couple weeks. Um, 
I think that they are no exception in bringing out those two things, um, even though the passage, Acts 2.42 today, doesn't say love and truth. Um, I think you'll see clearly that it's demonstrating those concepts. And I just wanted to go back to this, um, asking the question, are we being about the right things as a church before, uh, like regularly, I think we ought to do that. And especially just kind of leading up to our time when we'll all be together at the retreat, talk a little bit about this stuff too, and just have some vision for the future. Um, But it's it's gonna come back to love and truth. But this passage, I think, helps by looking at the very, very beginning of the church, literally the first church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, almost exactly 2,000 years ago, give or take 20 years. Um, What were they doing? What were they about? What were their um, regular activities? And so just to kind of set up the context a little bit of, I mean, many of you know kind of the beginning of the book of Acts, but Jesus is just leaving the scene at the end of the Gospels, right? He's leaving his earthly ministry. He tells the disciples, go make more disciples, and I'll be with you. And then in the beginning of the book of Acts, um, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And um, and then what is promised by um, Jesus and what's promised by the prophet Joel and others Um, shortly after Jesus ascends to heaven to be with the Father, um, the Holy Spirit comes to God's people, specifically in this this case to the apostles, we call it Pentecost, and the apostles begin to speak in tongues, they're speaking in languages that are known by people that are in Jerusalem from other places, and they're like, how are they speaking in my own language? native language, this is supernatural, and they're just amazed, and the apostles are like, we don't, I mean, they didn't say this in scripture, but they're probably like, I don't even, I don't know how I'm doing this, but this is, must be the Holy Spirit, and um, to kind of explain what's going on, Peter gives a sermon, and um, he talks about what these prophecies are a fulfillment. God said that they would happen. The prophet said that they would happen. He informs all of these people in Jerusalem, by the way, you killed Jesus, Messiah. And by the way, he couldn't be contained by death. And so the people are like, their response is a little bit different than sometimes their response when we preach the gospel. Um, their response, it says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, And then we find out 3,000 people were added to their number that day. They went from 120 early in the day to 3,120, I guess, approximately, um, at the end of the day, which, like, if you took those ratios to our church, which is smaller than 120. Like it'd still be, if you have our church, one morning we're getting together, say, for a fellowship meal, and at the end of the day, there's 750 people added to that. Like, this is a big deal, and something to be very excited about. I imagine the the early apostles, they're very excited. I guess, I hope that we'd be very excited if we if 750 people decided they're all around us to repent and be baptized. And we'd be freaking out with excitement. I'd be freaking out. I'd be like, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, but y'all, in the midst of like this amazing work of God, in the midst of this miracle of tongues coming to these apostles, in the midst of maybe the most successful start to a new church that ever has been or ever will be, um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is explaining what what then became the regular church activities in this amazing new church that's starting up? And to some extent, what's, what's the response? Like it says in the verse before where we're going to start, there are 3,000 souls added, and then in our verse, and they, those people, devoted themselves, and we'll talk about what they devoted themselves to. Um, but this Acts 2.42 in this few verses gives a great summary, not a blueprint of what church has to look exactly like, that we can see the value of these early disciples and what they were committed to in a 
inarguable, healthy, great time in this first church when there's 3,000 souls added. Um, an increase of however many, 300% or whatever. Um, so let's read, can somebody just read Acts 2, 42 through 47? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Okay. Um, as excited as I get about verses 44 and 45, and intrigued by that, we're going to talk about that next week. Um, and look specifically just today, mainly at verse 42, and a little bit of verse 46. Um, so even though God doesn't prescribe in Scripture some exact church format, that every church has to follow this, I think we can learn from this first church that... And we can see that there were there was a devotion to certain activities in this kind of summarizing paragraph. Any commentator that you read will talk about how Luke, two or three times in this uh, book, just kind of summarizes the church activities, and this is one of them. Um, and there's similarities between all of them. But before we like look at those specific Christian activities that verse 42 talks about. Um, I want to make sure that we don't skip over the part that says they devoted themselves to dot, dot, dot. And I want to point out that this was not, these weren't things that the early disciples, the first 3,000 disciples, the first church thought were kind of important, but they devoted themselves to these things that we're going to talk about. Devoting themselves, that's in our, um, in the ESV, it's Devoted is like is one word, right? But there's actually two words that are used uh, in the Greek that that the maybe a good English translation is that they devoted themselves. But the um, New American Standard and others kind of use two terms to describe it, which may be a little more direct translation, which would be they were continually devoting themselves to these things that we'll talk about. Um, it, it wasn't just a one-time thing, but it was something. It was an ongoing. So um, that that word of those words combined, you, I've I've read it, it. It could mean some of these things, or it does mean these things. That they gave constant attention to these things. They persevered in these things. They were constantly diligent in these things, or like very literally, if you look at the words, they stayed close or held close to these things. They kept these constantly near to them. And so I just, I want to point out before we start listing these things off that it's not to be taken lightly. I don't think what they were devoting themselves continually to. It's a, it's a big, like they were putting a lot of emphasis into this. And it was a conscious decision that they were making to, to move towards these things and be devoted continually to these things. Um, and as we look through these, there's kind of four things that it mentions. I think it's kind of really two, and then the last two are summarizing one of them. Um, but as we look at these, I think it would be worth asking, hey, what, what are these things? Like, what is the apostles teaching? What is the fellowship, the breaking bread prayers? What are they? And um, are we also continually devoting ourselves to similar type things? Um, or what would it look like for us to devote ourselves to similar things? So they devoted themselves to these things, continually devoted themselves. First of all, to the apostles' teaching. The apostles um, are listed in the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1. You recognize some of these guys, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, okay, we're getting a little less known. Uh, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot, Judas, the son of James. Okay, those are, there's 11 there. Um, 
those are the apostles, they're teaching, they're, these people are continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching specifically. It wasn't just teaching, it wasn't just like some good ideas that some people had, but it was the teaching specifically here of the teaching of the apostles. And I want to like be really clear that there's a fundamental difference between the teaching that these apostles were giving and the, the ministry that a a teacher of the Bible nowadays has, okay? Um, so we'll go into just what apostle means, because apostle is a, is a, it can be a confusing term just because there's different senses of what that term means. Apostle, I mean, it just means a sent one, I think. Um, but there's kind of two, um, Categories to think of apostles, and I want to just um, make sure that we understand what apostles uh, Luke is talking about here. So there is, I, I don't, um, I don't know if this is a more of just a theological uh, term or if this is something that you read in scripture, the term of office, but maybe you all have heard of the apostolic office or the office of an apostle. Um, that is, that is the main sense of apostle, and that is the type of apostle that Luke is talking about here. So God intended for there to be 12 apostles, it seems. In Mark 3, Jesus appoints the 12, and he calls them apostles. And it's a very specific 12. And so, so important was this idea of 12 that the the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts, where I was just reading that they were listed, they realized, oh, since Judas betrayed Jesus and then went off and killed himself, now we're only 11. We need to replace the missing one so we can have 12 again. And the significance of the 12, I don't know that we can ever know the importance of that completely, except that the 12 were involved in the beginnings and setting the foundation for the beginning of the church. And there's some like end times eschatological role that they have in judging the 12 nations of Israel. And that lines up somehow or another. I don't, I don't even know. Maybe Randy has some ideas about what, that, um, what specifically that means. But there's, there's a unique 12 apostles, okay? And um, that is their, their primary purpose that we see here through the book of Acts and even in the writings, many of them are writing the rest of the New Testament, they're setting the foundations for the church to go by. Apostles, we understand as we understand this role of the office of the apostle, they had to have seen the risen Christ we read about in 1 Corinthians 9. They had to have been specifically selected by God or God's spirit to be an apostle we'll say uppercase A, apostle, like that role, that office. And they had to be displaying miraculous powers, too. It's talked about in 2 Corinthians 12. So that's, that's the office, we'll say, of apostle. There's also, um, arguably, the spiritual gift of apostle, Okay. We talk about spiritual gifts a lot. Everybody, the Spirit gives to everyone that's a part of the church gifts so that we can serve the common good. One of those gifts maybe, I believe, is an apostle gift. Whether you want to call it that or not, I understand there's a lot of people that are hesitant to call a, saying that person is an apostle or they're a gifted apostle because they don't want to say they're apostle in the same sense that John and James and Peter are apostles. But um, if, if you're talking about the gift of apostleship, like Ephesians 4, um, 5, uh, and one or two other places mention kind of this, this seemingly gift of being an apostle, being an apostle, it's someone, it's similar to missionary in that it's somebody who is gifted by God to proclaim the gospel and begin ministry in a new place or in a difficult place. It's kind of the idea of an apostle, somebody that's sent to carry on that specific kind of task. So in, in scripture, we read about several people who are called apostles that aren't part of the original 12 apostles, um, like Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle as he has a specific mission that he goes with Paul as, as a missionary to 
certain places. Jesus was even called an apostle. It's apostle in a different sense, but it's apostle in the sense that he was sent for a specific mission to atone for sin. Um, so if you ever hear me say, I, I feel like this is one way that God has gifted me in apostleship, just know that this is the only way that I'm referring to, um, to that gift. And the difference between the two types of apostle, the office or the gift, has to do with authority. So somebody who is a gifted apostle, or if you don't want to use the term apostle, then people say spiritual entrepreneur or whatever, church planter. Okay, that, fine. Um, a Jesus pioneer. A Jesus pioneer. There we go. <laughs> um, if you don't, um, that's that's the only sense I believe we can use the term apostle today. We're no longer setting up the foundations of the universal church. We're no longer speaking with the authority that the original apostles who who pinned largely the New Testament. We're not speaking with that same authority. It's not, we don't, um, you don't commit to Jared's teaching, but we commit to the apostles' teaching, or now we have um, even the whole of Scripture now that we're to be committed to. So, um, I, so if somebody is gifted with apostleship, they hold no special authority that any other gift in the church doesn't have within that. Yes, it's God-given, but um, it's in a different sense than a capital A apostle, we'll say. Does that make sense? Um, I'm concerned about, there's, there's some in our modern day that are claiming to hold what seems to be more of the office of apostle. Um, and 2 Corinthians 11 warns us about that, I think. And so I would say if, if you're hearing somebody that's claiming to be an apostle in the sense that they are a new mouthpiece of God expressing some new revelation of God, I would run the other way personally. Um, because there's, I, I think that that sense of the word apostle was limited to the 12 that, that Jesus called out. Um, so the early church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. So specifically the teachings of these 12 who had been hand-selected by God and seen the risen Jesus who were performing miracles because they spoke with an authority um, that no one else could speak with. Um, fast forward to our century here in our church, and I would say if the early church found it important to devote themselves to the authoritative teaching of the apostles, what might be a similar devotion that we would have? It's not going to be they devoted, no, the church devoted themselves to Jared's teachings or Randy's teachings. What do you say? The Bible. Yeah, the Bible is the, that's, that's our authoritative word from God now, right? And much of that is the apostles' teaching. I mean, it's not that it's a lot different from what these early, the early church was um, devoting themselves to, though they didn't have kind of this complete uh, canon of scripture. And they were hearing things orally, not just reading them in a book. Um, but um, you might notice that, I hope you notice that our teachings on Wednesday generally are very focused on the Bible. And the reason for that, like we could, we could just have someone come in and kind of, or any of us could come and kind of rant on about some things that we know a lot about that would be helpful to the group, I'm sure, that we're experienced in. Um, like I feel like I've learned a lot of valuable things in life that I could share. Um, maybe you wouldn't want to listen, but, uh, or maybe you've been to churches um, that have very motivational messages that are good and helpful um, but they kind of are some musings of the pastor um, that just, they don't seem to have the weight of the authority of scripture. Um, so we don't devote ourselves to TED Talks. And you know those, those things are good and they can be helpful, but that's, that's different than devoting ourselves to the scripture. And it's honestly, it's just a matter of authority. As much as people have great things to say, 
we believe that scripture is breathed out by God, and that's what's profitable, most profitable for teaching. And um, we want to, as a church, continually devote ourselves to that, to keep it constantly near to us, God's word. And I'll say this, to the extent that myself or anybody else that's teaching in this church, to the extent that we're accurately understanding and communicating what God's word says, um, we, all of us, are bound to and, and commanded to live according to that word. If, if, so anything that I'm understanding correctly about scripture that I've studied and I'm communicating to you, um, we, we all ought to and get to do that because it's coming from the authoritative word of God. Now, hopefully we can all have discernment in the things that I say or that we search in scripture, maybe afterwards, after the sermon is done and we find out oh, that wasn't true, then we can throw that out as, oh, that was just kind of Jared's idea um, or Randy's idea, whoever it is. Um, but the Bible is God's divinely inspired word, as was the teaching of the apostles. And as a church, I'm not asking anybody to commit to my ideas or my thoughts, um, and you're getting gypped if that's what you hope to get. I hope that's not exactly what you want. But we as a church, I think, can look back to this first church and realize we ought to probably similarly be committed and, and devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. And part of that teaching, now it gets a little bit hairy here, but part of that teaching involves teachers like part of understanding God's word, he gives teachers as another gift to the church. So that's part of it, but the authority doesn't rest in with what the teachers say. Um, the authority rests in God's word, which the teachers are just explaining, as they've supernaturally, I believe, been empowered to do in a special way. Um, but we're explaining God's ideas, not our own ideas, hopefully. Um, and the main place that we do that as a church is what we're sitting in right now. That's kind of our primary um, gathering to do that. There is hopefully, obviously, a time for um, personal Bible study. What? Your, your face just got, your eyes got so big. There is. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's like, I would, I encourage you all to, in it, any way that you can and that you have time for to study God's word, if that's privately or, or corporately or whatever. But I, I will remind you that in, in the early church and for centuries in the church, people were learning the, the inspired words of God orally. Like they didn't have a bunch of copies of Bibles sitting around that they could grab and study personally, but it was very much a community and a, a, a teacher driven to some extent. Um, exercise. So um, personal Bible study, quiet time as we like to call it, is incredibly valuable and good. Um, and I, I don't in any way want to discourage that. I think we, we should all participate in that because we can uh, now. Um, but certainly just as important is this um, group combined, I think teacher gifted led study of God's word. So, um, I just love that from the very beginning, all the way up until 2016, is that what we are? People are devoting themselves to this authoritative truth that God provides, whether it's from the first century apostles or whether it's from um, the word of God in our case. And if you notice, I said the truth there, even though this, the passage doesn't say specifically truth, that's the one of those two things that I said really stands out, I think, as you look in, in the New Testament about what the church is supposed to be, what we're talking about truth here, okay? and a commitment to the truth, and specifically that comes out in studying and, and teaching and understanding God's word. So the other thing that I said that the, that the church, or that we've found, even that the church is supposed to be about, is not just truth, but love. That's the second thing. So if you... Read on, that was a lot. The apostles' teaching seems so simple. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, um, it goes on to say the breaking of bread and the prayers. Some people will read that as four different activities. Um, 
And I think that's fine. I think what Luke is trying to do, and if you look like at all of our English translations, um, you'll notice that it says that, that there's a bit of a break, and we all put, we put commas in it. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching of the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If, he, if Luke was just listing those as four different things, he could have, like in English, we would have said one thing, comma, another thing, comma, another thing, and the last thing, right? Or he could have said one thing and one thing and another thing and another thing. But instead he says, and this is true to the, to the original, he says the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I think, and, and there's not just me, but other people think that he, he's describing the fellowship and he's putting in apposition, they say, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. I mean, that's like a description of that second category, the fellowship. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And it makes, if you think about it, that would make sense. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Almost parenthetical, but it's a, a maybe an explanation. I, if, if you think otherwise, I think that's fine. Um, that You're not going to miss out greatly if you separate them out into four things, but um, where did we go here? Three, four. Um, so fellowship. This this word um, we've talked about it before, but in our if you grew up in the church, maybe what has what does what has fellowship meant to you, or what does that term tend to mean? Yeah, Joy. Our fellowship time was fifteen minutes after the church service before Sunday school. So is it? That wasn't all it was when I was growing up. That was called fellowship time. Uh And there was coffee and there were cookies. And it just meant hang out together. Yep. Okay. Which I loved it. Donuts? Seriously. (laughs) Sometimes it's just the potluck. In college, it was like uh, very specifically timed events. Like, Let's go fellowship time at the bowling alley on Thursday <laughs> from six to eight. Yeah. Etc. Yeah. To me, it, it was. I mean, fellowship was just a way to say it's what Christian, how Christians hang out. It, like we were fellowshipping at the bowling alley, whether it meant anything spiritual or not. We were just together at the bowling alley. And yeah. That, but since we were Christians, it was fellowship somehow. That was the like two minutes where they're like, turn around and say hello to somebody. Yeah. Don't sit down till the timer's done. And everyone's like, we just like that. Say hi to three people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great fellowship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's always how I always feel. I don't like that part because you just all you do is you shake. Hi, I'm Joy. Hi, I'm Tom. And it's like, <laughs> see you never. Yeah. yeah. And it's usually like this man and his wife and their kid, and you're like, and they're just like, we don't care to get to know you. And you're like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what I expected. Um, like, unfortunately, fellowship, this beautiful word that's koinonia, is like, has been watered down just to mean very little. Um, and when really, and it's not a real common term in scripture, but it's used, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 times to where you can get a good sense of what the word means. And what, like some good words, some good synonyms for it um, are partnership or participation together, or maybe the, the best, I think, is just union. You're in union with each other. Um, practically in scripture fellowship is talked about by sharing specifically in fact next week we'll look at that's maybe a description of some of their fellowship that they're sharing with one another Um, or sometimes koinonia is actually translated contributions like when a church is taking a contribution for some needs and but again that's all like partnership or we're, we're in this thing together in in, in unity with each other. Um, Paul and John both use 
the word koinonia to describe our relationship with God and, and Christ and our relationship within the church. And it's talked about in the sense of just we share in the same spirit and we're in just in union with each other. Did you say Paul and John? Paul and John, both, yeah. Um, I don't think Luke uses it maybe at all outside of this verse or um, not much, but. Um, so where it's used here though, it's koinonia. It's koinonia. And probably, most likely, Luke is using like what Paul calls, what Paul uses that term koinonia for in 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about a, specifically is talking about a shared meal. And that's, it's a word, it's probably connected to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 when we talk about the Lord's Supper um, and, and eating together. Like there's some close association with how we're all, we have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship as the body of Christ and that's expressed in the early church. It was expressed um, in in a meal together. Um, it's it's interesting if you look at the verse. It says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and it's not just they devoted themselves to fellowship, which is again that's that's a good translation. And I think most of the English translations we have say the fellowship. There's it's called a definite article that's put before fellowship, which means it's not. Probably it's not just talking about a general sense of fellowship that the church shares, but he's probably talking about a specific expression of that fellowship in a specific activity. So what we see, like historically, what Paul talks about a little bit, and historically in the first couple centuries of the church, we've talked about it a little bit as a church here, but is this meal that the church would share together regularly, oftentimes once a week, that became known as the agape meal or the love meal or feast and um, it's something that they would take communion together, they would eat together, they would pray together. And so likely that's specifically what Luke is referring to when he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's kind of a, something, an, an event or a, you know, that's something that you attend or a part of. And the fellowship, which maybe specifically is culminated in, in a particular activity. And y'all, um, I get really excited about this because it sounds really familiar to me um, in what we do on our Sunday meals together. Our, we call them fellowship meals. And um, I think that these, these two things that Luke described, and we'll talk about the breaking of bread and the prayers in just a second, but these two things that Luke describes of the early church sound um, they seem to sync well with the priority activities that we have as a church. So that makes me just excited and happy. And so I love to be able to point to some places in Scripture and say, well, here's kind of why we, I mean, we don't know exactly what this looked like, but this is kind of um, some of why we do what we do. And um, obviously there's a ton of room for creativity and again this isn't meant to be prescriptive or a blueprint for exactly what every church has to do um, in their activities um, but I love that what we do sinks easily at least with this and if you look so further what does that fellowship look like um, it, it's the breaking of bread and the prayers the breaking of bread is a way that Luke talks about just eating together in general. Um, it's a way that as you look in scripture, it's also breaking of bread tends to also become known as the specific like Lord's Supper or we call it communion sometimes or the Eucharist, sometimes it's called. Um, but that's like the culmination, it seems, of eating together that Jesus is kind of like, hey, when you eat together, do this in remembrance of me. And it seems like so that breaking of bread became kind of synonymous, not just with eating together, but with specifically celebrating or, or remembering the Lord. Um, and so, uh, again, there's a definite article there to the breaking of bread, which makes me kind of think it's not just to breaking of the bread, to eating together, but it's maybe a specific version of that, which sounds like the Lord's Supper, if you just kind of compare it to other scripture. Um, 
So pro probably Luke is referring to just both here. I think we can. It's okay to understand the breaking of bread as yes, prob probably the Lord's Supper because it's the breaking of bread, and you would really only take the Lord's Supper as a part of a meal together. So probably both. Again, as part of the fellowship. And then you see the prayers. So in the first century, the Jews, um, they had regular times of prayer. In fact, Peter and John, in the next chapter, they go to one of those regular times of prayer. Um, and after that, it's, it's, I love to study sometime uh, the transition that the early church makes from temple worship to kind of realizing, well, that's not even really so needed anymore and how they, what the communities, like with the, with the Jews who didn't believe in Christ as Messiah, like what did that transition look like? And I'm, I'm foggy on kind of what exactly that looked like. But the, these Jews who had become Christians that we're reading about here, 3,000 plus of them, they still had this, it, probably for a time, some commitment to some of the Jewish habits, which included some specific prayer times. Um, and it was a commitment to not just personal, private, continual prayer, like I'm, I should be praying all the time in a sense, um, but it was a commitment to some regular, the prayers. It was some regular, public, seemingly group prayer. And I don't know if that was initially part of the Agape Feast, I assume it was, or if that's what it became a part of, but... Anyway, all that to say, that time of breaking of bread, which probably culminates in the Lord's Supper and the prayers. Again, I get kind of excited because I think about our fellowship meals, and what that tends to be is we're breaking bread, we're sharing a meal together, it culminates in the Lord's Supper, and the portion after our meal that we share together, oftentimes a large portion of that is prayer. We haven't said that that's kind of the main purpose of it. Maybe we should if we're looking at this for kind of a model, um, but that's... That's, again, I, I think, wow, it gives some validity as we look at this um, to think, hey, maybe we're doing, we're about some of the right things here. So I want you all just to see and be encouraged, just I'll take a minute to say this, that what we do as a church is not random, and it's kind of cool because when, when we kind of, when we started fellowship meals and midweek teaching like this, it wasn't because of this verse in particular. We didn't say we're going to do what Acts, what the disciples in Acts 2.42 did. But we're looking at the whole of the New Testament and how that summarizes some church characteristics of truth and love. And we said, well, a good way to demonstrate is that those two characteristics are in a teaching and in a meal together. And that just so happens to be the very type of thing that this first church was doing. So I think we're on target. Um, just quickly, and before I end here, I want to um, point out that these activities mentioned in this kind of summarizing passage, now don't hate me for saying this, but musical worship of God is not in the forefront of priorities. I know. Um, you see, in verse 47, it says praising God. Okay, so maybe that we can praise God with music. Um, but I, you guys know it's very common, I think, in, in modern Christian world to gauge the health or even the vivacity of a church based on how amazing and powerful their worship music during the worship services are like that expresses, yeah, I mean, we look at that, and I do this myself, and I think, oh, that's a really spirit-filled church, or that's a, that's a church that really loves the Lord, based on what I see in that situation. Um, and that, I mean, you guys know, when you're looking for a church, it's, you've done this, like Mary Beth and I have done, you usually it comes down to, you go to the service, and you think, well, how is the speaker, and how is the worship, and that's how we kind of land on the church, oftentimes. Um, I, I read a, a commentator, I, Howard Marshall, that says this regarding verse 47 that says they praised God. He says, this is one of the few references in Acts to the Christians worshiping God in the sense of rendering thanks to him. 
Um, the fewness of such phrases reminds us that according to the New Testament witness, Christian gatherings were for instruction, fellowship, and prayer. In other words, for the benefit of the people taking part. There's less mention of the worship of God, but listen, although of course this element was not absent. Nobody's saying we shouldn't worship God. Um, and this, he's a little, it's a little cold, maybe this section that I just read of his. Um, and I don't ever want to say that we shouldn't worship God, give thanks, give praise to him in music and anything else. But if you just look at the activities of the New Testament church, this passage included, you're absolutely not going to find a priority of musical worship of God. That's coming from a guy who's a worship pastor for 10 years, and that's all I thought about and did. Um, and y'all, I understand that an epic worship experience is good and meaningful and can and enjoyable, and I, I, I don't discount those great times. But what I want you to see is in the midst of this really exciting time and the growth of the, this initial good, healthy, untainted church, the things that are mentioned in their activities don't involve, and they put on a really great worship service, and then people were added, you know? So just when we're talking about just priorities, that's not, you can search through the New Testament and musical worship, you're gonna find a tiny hint of it here and a tiny hint of it there, but that certainly is put well below some other important activities here specifically, God, the, the teaching, understanding of God's word, prayers, fellowship, the breaking bread, those types of things. You can find those all over the New Testament. Um, so can you all not hear me saying that I don't think we should worship God with singing? Yeah. Yes. I was, just, I was going to say, um, I wrote, like, you can't actually praise or worship God until you come to know him through your experience with the word and his people. So they have yeah. to come first. Good, yeah. So who are you praising and worshiping if you don't know him through yeah. the teachings and through his people? That's good, yeah, really good. Okay, so to go just um, back to where we started, um, these early disciples, they didn't just do these activities. It says they were continually devoting themselves to these things. And they're devoting themselves, I think it's key, I don't, maybe I'm making it more key than it's supposed to be, but they're devoting themselves, to, it's two activities actually, the, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Like it's not just a vague, yes we're devoted to truth and love, but it's actual, a devotion to actually apply that and live that out in very specific activities. Um, and it says, even in verse 46, day by day, like that's devotion to these things. We don't even, I mean, I don't even have a concept for attending the temple day by day and, and meeting in homes from house to house day by, like this, that's, that's overwhelming to me to think about that. But that's, a, that's a, certainly a devotion. And they were attending temple, it says, which is probably where the bulk of the apostles' teaching was taking place. And they were breaking bread in their homes. That's this fellowship kind of meal that they were having. That's what they were devoted to. So um, just to kind of conclude and summarize, these two standout characteristics of the church, um, truth and love, you might be able to describe it another way. That's just how it's, it's helped, been helpful for me to kind of simplify. Um, in Acts 2, we see that kind of some direct activities that are expressing those two things. You, the apostles' teaching is is a practical activity to search out or to know truth. Fellowship, the fellowship and these things are certainly a practical way to carry out um, the, the characteristic of love. Um, and we as NoHo Church, as this local church, want to demonstrate similar characteristics of truth and love. And we want to continually be devoted to the same types of things, even though it's going to look a little bit different, but the same types of things that the church of God has always been about. It's nothing new that we're doing. 
Um, so the teaching and learning of scripture and the fellowship, the loving fellowship that we share with each other. Now there's things that we, all of us would like to add in there as other priorities and other important things. And there's other things that we can do as a church that would be good and God honoring and we will do as a church. Um, but our, our primary activities I think are good and I think are in line with scripture as far as our regular Christian gatherings. Um, there's many different ways to go about doing this. I can send you to other churches around town that are practicing these things in a little bit different ways and a little bit different context. And those are good and fine. And like somebody, I think Megan said, there's some people that are gonna grow better in one of those contexts and somebody gonna be, grow better in this context. Um, that's fine. But I wanna just kind of end by asking us to just consider kind of individually, are you, continually devoting yourself to the scriptures and to the fellowship. Um, again, those are the concepts of truth and love, um, but practically they come out in this church in multiple ways, but in significant ways in some gatherings that we have. Are you continually, are we continually devoting ourselves to these types of things? If so, great and how can we continue to do that and grow in it um, for some again the, the rigid activities aren't the thing that God really cares about um, so it's actually what these things benefit in our lives so I would say just coming on a Wednesday night or going to a fellowship meal and getting your attendance marked isn't exactly what I don't think like God doesn't really care so much about that you all know that. Um, so maybe it means like if we just want to grow in our commitment to these things, maybe it means for Wednesday night actually like spending some time preparing, thinking about the, the scripture before and after or preparing like I know Jessica said she would do. Um, like actually when we say here's what's coming up, what we're going to teach. Oh, actually reading that beforehand and thinking it through. Maybe even going off and studying it on your own a little bit. Um, or maybe... <laughs> Maybe even saying there's things, and the, the similar, similar with the fellowship meals, but you know, there's times that we obviously, that even if we're really devoted to something, we go on a vacation or sick, whatever it is. I'm not saying um, perfect attendance is the goal, um, but I am saying I think it would make sense in keeping in line with scripture that to be continually devoted to these types of things, that it might mean cutting some other things out of our life if, if we can't make a priority of learning God's word and being in fellowship with each other. It might mean that some leisurely fun activities that we like to do, um, we may have to prioritize those behind um, some commitment to God and what he calls us to. It may be that we have to give up a little bit of extra income that we could have made and if, and live in a smaller place because we want to not just do what's good and responsible, but we want to do really what we see some in scripture. It might mean bypassing some hobbies. So I'm talking like, like this, I think that that's, Gosh, next week we're going to see a mind-blowing commitment to fellowship and community as people sell what they have to meet people's needs. Um, but this is a continual devotion that the, 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 the early disciples have to these things. So I wonder, how, how are you as individuals doing in that? How am I doing in that? How are we doing in those things? And if not so good, then what do we need to give up? Or what... Maybe I have to turn down something on Tuesday night that I want to do because I need to sleep well so that on Wednesday I can be refreshed to um, be alert and active in, in my learning. Or maybe it's that means I am giving up something on Saturday night. Like think outside of just, I, oh, I made it to the event, I did the thing that I was supposed to do, but actually um, being devoted to those things. I'd like to just ask that God would um, would help us to be devoted to these things. God, um, you uh, you have such an amazing uh, plan for your church, and you have such um, you have some very clear mission for your church, 
And but God, you also like I was saying at the beginning, you also have a lot of give. You give grace for creativity and for our own expression and for our own just figuring out how we can honor you and what you call us to. And so I pray, God, that it would be a joy for us in this church to um, to seek learning your your authoritative, holy, uh, helpful scriptures. Pray that that would be fulfilling to us and joyful and that we would love it and that we would desire to know you through your word. And I pray that we would love the family that you have called us into and that we would live in the reality of a fellowship that you have you've made um, possible and you've made a reality. And God, that we would just open our eyes to it and continue to open our eyes to it and live in that reality, in the family that you've called us to in partnership with one another for the sake of the gospel. Um, God, mature us um, to prioritize things in our lives rightly and um, help us to desire the things that you desire.